0: Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church in modern times and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Dr. Scott Hahn. Dr. Scott Hahn is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he has taught since 1990. He is the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. Dr. Hahn has been married to Kimberly for 40 years, and together they have six children and 18 grandchildren. Two of their sons are currently in priestly formation with the Diocese of Steubenville. Dr. Hahn is the author or editor of over 40 popular and academic books, including best-selling titles, *Rome Sweet Home, The Lamb's Supper, and Hail Holy Queen. He is a former Presbyterian minister who entered the Catholic Church in 1986. Over the last three decades, Dr. Hahn has delivered thousands of popular talks and academic lectures nationally and internationally on a wide range of topics related to scripture, theology, and the Catholic faith. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Scott Hahn. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Scott Hahn.
1: You're most welcome, Kimberly.
0: You and your wife, Kimberly, have been a very real, incredible example of life giving love in the church, and your journey together to Rome has inspired many. Do you often reflect on the enormity of your Pauline conversion and how God used all of your evangelical, biblical formation to ultimately bring a fuller understanding of salvation history to the Catholic Church?
1: Okay. <laughs> Let me answer the question in three stages. Okay. First of all, After being a Catholic now for 33 years and going, I am more grateful than ever. It's more true than I realized. It's more beautiful than I realized. Uh, I feel as though I'm still only beginning to plumb the depths of the beautiful, the powerful, the truthful. It's just so much greater than this world can bear, and yet it beckons us. And so, wow, what has happened to us, to me, you know, 33 years ago and to Kimberly, almost 30 years ago. It is a story that's out there. You know, the gratitude that we feel in here in our hearts, we we don't really feel as though, well, as Catholics, I feel like we have saints. And so we don't need celebrities. We don't want to be celebrities. We want to be holy. And you know, as Catholics, you can't be holy until you persevere to the end. Uh, you can look holy, sound holy, people can think you're holy and not be holy. And so that's why I say, if I didn't know me, I might be impressed. I'm impressed by the saints who made it all the way to the end. And and the third thing is this, you know, we are grateful to God beyond words for how he uses our lives, our writings and our talks and that kind of thing. But even more, much more, we're grateful for 40 years of marriage, for our six kids, for our 18 grandkids. And for the countless other spiritual kids and grandkids that we felt that we have, having taught at Franciscan University of Steubenville, yes. where you went, <laughs> um, for 30 years and, you know, 5,000 students plus. And then also, you know, the, the 50 or so people who have lived with us, you know, starting with Tim Gray and Ted Surrey and Curtis Martin and Jeff Cavins and... Uh, Michael Barber, and all of these guys who are like spiritual sons to Kimberly and to me. You know, that to me has been worth the ride and then some.
0: Right. <laughs> yes. And I know earlier today you spoke about the family and an interesting perspective on Jesus, how we only really look at those three years a lot of times because the 30 years before that we don't know too much about. And so we kind of just put it off and right. we don't give it a lot of credibility. You made the point that those 30 years are so important, even though he was doing, quote unquote, mundane family things. And I think you said, we don't want to be famous, but honestly, a lot of people do still feel that call to be something, even in small circles or in their own parish. And I talk to so many people who tell me all the things they're excited that they're doing and that they're they're starting in their parish and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, you're so active. And then when you get to, oh, and how many children do you have? And yeah, but pray for them because no, none of them are with the church. I don't know. I get this sense sometimes that we are doing so much that we do neglect the family because it seems mundane. Women wanting to Not just stay home and be a stay-at-home mom because it doesn't seem very glorified. And even in the parish on a small level, wanting to be out there, wanting to be the leader of certain things and not seeing the beauty of what you can contribute to your own family at home. And so I think that that is something that you and Kimberly have spoken about for many years, not to neglect that and how important that role is.
1: Right. Well, as you began, you pointed out that Jesus and the silent years, 30 years that we don't hardly know anything about, you know, and so you're half tempted, at least I've been, to say, okay, Lord, God becomes man. The son of God becomes the son of man. And you spend 33 years on the planet, the last three years preaching and healing and teaching, dying and rising, saving us. What's with the 30 years? Why did you wait so long before you began the work of redemption? And what I discovered in becoming Catholic is what I think Jesus would say in reply to that question. You know, what were you waiting for? Get on with our redemption. He would say, I am for 30 years because redemption for us is not just being saved from hell and getting to heaven. It's entering into this mystery of love, life giving love that defines the family in a way that is entirely different than all of the other social institutions. There's one thing that God has formed from the beginning, and that is the covenant of marriage, which produces the family that becomes the tribe, that becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. But even when it's a nation, it's a national family. And when we become the Catholic Church, it's an international, a universal family that isn't traceable simply back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. As Pope Benedict pointed out, You know, when you move from the old to the new, you move from this tie to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to not having any blood bond. You also move from the legal structures, the institutions of Israel, where Gentiles are not a part of that. And finally, you move from the liturgical sacraments of the old law, Passover, the Sabbath, animal slaughter, and so on. You know, and the old covenant is an earthly family that is a sign that points to the divine family, the new covenant. But that's embodied in Nazareth, the holy family. And as I pointed out in my talk at the luncheon, you know, the holy family isn't just called that for some quaint religious rhetoric. It's the only family in all of history that actually was holy. (laughs) And and Mary and Joseph aren't like ex-spouses. When Pope Francis inserted St. Joseph into the Eucharistic prayer, it wasn't the ex-spouse. In a certain mysterious way, they're still married. The offspring of their yes their virginal union is still their son so they are our family they are an image of the divine family they translate all of this doctrine into something that is truly accessible so that in Joseph's workshop being apprenticed by his dad learning how to work with wood the lathe the saw whatever else you know I have a book called ordinary work extraordinary Mm -hmm. grace because that's what happens when you do ordinary work with extraordinary love you set into motion the waves of redemption so that what he's doing the last three years is the culmination. Right. It isn't suspending what he was doing. It's the completion of what he came to do and what was, he was doing with the Holy Family of Nazareth.
0: And so many saints reiterate that, do small things with great love. You know, they reiterate that, Therese and Mother Teresa, and we hear this over and over again, the saints, you know, Martin de Porres, who just wanted to sweep the floors, and St. Right. Anthony of Padua. what are you good at? Washing dishes, you know? And I think that we just need to remind ourselves that those are the important things because they are growing in virtue through what they're doing. It's not just that they're, having this false humility, and a lot of people would say that those 30 years of Christ are the unimportant years, because if Christ wanted us to know something important, there would have been more written about it. You know, the Bible would have had more information about that, but we know that that's not true. There's a lot of important things that aren't always put in there. Our Lady doesn't have a lot of words, St. Joseph has no words, and that doesn't mean that it's for the lack of how important they were in the life of Christ. And I think we do need to keep on emphasizing the home, those years, the family life. Like you're saying, the work can be so big, even though it's hidden and small, seemingly in the world.
1: Nothing extracts me from my own self-centeredness like marriage, parenthood, family (laughs) life, that sort of thing. You know, and so for our culture, which is so steeped in individualism, you know, me being happy is what it's all about. And yet, as C. S. Lewis and others have pointed out, when you pursue happiness, you end up miserable. Happiness is a kind of byproduct mm-hmm. of what it is you do when you love others. You know, and I think there's also a Catholic equivalent. I, I feel as though we want to be saints, but it's 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 also you've got to be realistic and honest about this. You know, I want to be holy. Well I do. I want to be humble. I do, but I know for a fact that as long as I'm living in this mortal coil on this particular planet, there will never be a morning where I can wake up, look in the mirror and say safely, finally, I am humble. Right. I am holy.
0: I'm there. Right. (laughs) I I, made it. I I can't even
1: (laughs) say I'm happy because by lunch, I won't be. Right. And so- Let the
0: canonization process begin after breakfast, right? right?
1: So the, the food is to do the will of God. And as I mentioned in the luncheon address, too, you know, we were told that when we were preparing for marriage, there will be bad days. You know, be loving, be patient, be respectful. But what we weren't told is that there will be bad years. There were really tough times after miscarriages, after my conversion, when we had three teenagers, you know. But the thing that I come back to again and again is this spiritual bond. Of faith hope and love that we have with God the Father with Jesus through the Holy Spirit with the Blessed Virgin this has got to be the source and the wellspring for our family life Kimberly can't give me what Christ alone can if I'm leaning on her instead of the Lord I will crush her we both have learned that lesson so I am an instrument a sign and that God can use to bring her grace and she is oh my is she ever for me (laughs) but you've been at her home you know that our family life is fun that is the most important thing for me as a husband and a father to let all six of our kids know that the catholic faith is true but it's also fun you will never find a greater source of abiding joy than the communion of saints than the seven sacraments Mm -hmm. you know than the mysteries of our faith and study them but not just to get good grades study them to enjoy them and let that joy be in a certain sense the means by which you communicate that to to other people and I think that's why you know when I look at our six kids and our 18 grandkids and two sons in the seminary it isn't because of some special formula it's just the fact that Kimberly's put up with me and I have loved her and we've had joy and they have seen it and they know there's reality and truth, even when they fall short, even when mom and dad don't live it out to the max, it's still true.
0: Right, and actually your wife's book, Life-Giving Love had a huge impact on me when I was coming into Franciscan University and coming into the church and she knows this, but um, I really struggled kind of coming from this feminist background with the idea of motherhood. To me, all that I had over and over again in my head was how motherhood was your last option, your last resort. If you couldn't do anything with your life, if you weren't that smart and you weren't going to go to school like college or amount to anything, it was kind of the last peg, you know, well, you could always just be a housewife and a mother. And I had this terrible idea of that. It was the last thing I would ever want for myself. It basically meant that you had nothing going for you. You were unmarketable, unsuccessful, unintelligent, and all that you could do was stay home (laughs) and produce babies, you know? And um, when I read her book, When I went to Steubenville, I knew in my head that I was wrong. When I started to study, I said, I know that this is true. But for some reason, I couldn't get that out. It had been repeated so many times, it was hard for me to embrace it. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll just be called to be single because I can't Embrace that, you know. Maybe it'll just, it just won't get there, and I'll just know it's true, and I'll just have to live like that as a sacrifice. And I read her book, and it had a huge impact on me. It was like a light went off. I said, I get it. You know, I'm not going to say everything changed right then and there, but for the first time, I thought, maybe I can be a mother. Maybe I can love motherhood. Maybe, and now I have four children, you know, and I love motherhood and I love staying home with them. And again, it's funny to look back and think that I ever thought that, but it's amazing how that book redeemed motherhood for me as Christ sees women, because I thought that you had to do to be something. I didn't think that it was just fulfilling what Christ gave you naturally through your physical and spiritual body that you were doing what he wanted. What would you say is the specific dignity that God has given to women, evidenced and perfectly exemplified through our lady?
1: Okay, before I forget, I'm going to have to ask a favor. <laughs> okay. Make sure you send me and Kimberly a copy of this interview. I want her to hear what she, you just shared. Yes, I All have right. shared this, I know. I
0: know. I have shared this with her and she knows that she has made a huge impact
1: and not just with you but with countless others. Yes. I know it. When I met her, she was in college and I was two, and she was the only sophomore at Grove City College to ever be inducted into the thespian society because of how much she'd done in theater, plays, and this sort of thing. you know. And then I remember uh, falling for her and working with her in youth ministry for the next two years, during which time our college choir performed, I think five, but maybe four, Of her own original music compositions in eight-part harmony
0: wow she
1: was the most amazing pianist
0: i didn't know that wrote
1: songs she did solo as well and i mean she was just dazzling as well as sassy and cute and Uh all of that and she was really amazing in the sense that you know one of my professors said you're about to marry the strongest argument for women's ordination i have ever heard oh my gosh and in our last two years in college before we got married we just looked into the scriptures and she became utterly convinced that ordaining women in the church is contrary to the explicit teaching of the New Testament.
0: Wow, as a Protestant. As
1: a Protestant, yeah, and so when we got married and we discovered Humanae Vitae, she did, and she shared it with me, and I resisted, but I recognized the truth. She opened herself up in a way that a man can't because a change of mind is not a change of body. You know, Mm -hmm. okay, the man ends up making sacrifices he didn't really anticipate fully. But a woman, I mean, her body and her psyche and her prayer life, she was getting her master's degree. When I met her, she was out to change the world. When we had our firstborn, she said to one of her friends, I'm still out to change the world. Just one diaper Diaper at at a time. time." Yep, I've heard her say that. And I've (laughs) seen her change the world. Hmm. And now she's changing the diapers of 18 grandkids (laughs) before the mom even gets a chance, you know. And she gets up at 7 a.m. and she has shown me That sacrifice is the path to fulfillment in a way that no book could ever do. And you know, I do find that she inspires more than an encyclical or a particular talker, this sort of thing. And people who read her, know her, oh, she's amazing. And then when you're a part of the family, you're like, you have no idea. (laughs) And I mean she goes to confession, not as much as me, you know, but I mean she knows herself to be a sinner. And it's that humility too. You know, one last thing. Four years ago four and a half, we dropped off our youngest, David, at Gregory the Great Academy. And we drove back and we realized after 26 years of homeschooling, we were empty nesters three years before we planned to be. He was in 10th grade. What am I going to do? I said, pray about it, but I think you ought to consider getting involved in local politics. She did a holy hour. She came back at dinner. She said, I'm convinced you might be right. And I said, "I, I think that your leadership will be an extension of your motherhood four years later she's a kind of matriarch in our town and most people don't know what that means they don't know what to do with her she's a force of energy that's so positive and constructive it's not should we do it it's how do we get it done you know and a lot of the people who are in the old boys network are like ah. Who invited her, you know, (laughs) and yet she sets into motion, even on city council, such a positive energy, such a constructive kind of love that one of the council members who's been around forever just referred to her. You're like Mother Teresa, you know, and I think that kind of motherhood is not only physical, biological, and natural, but it's moral. It's spiritual. It's, it's supernatural. We
0: talked about when she was on the podcast, we talked about her motherhood through politics, which I didn't really think about until we started talking and it just became so clear how she saw politics as an extension of her motherhood. And I'm thinking, has anyone ever said that? Like, I see politics as an extension of my motherhood or fatherhood. I said, that is completely original.
1: Right, Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan once complained about the family being a little monarchy. You know, and I'm not advocating monarchistic politics, but I would say we often reject things we don't understand. And when you go back and study Christian history, you discover that monarchy was not necessarily authoritarian. It was patriarchal and matriarchal, not unlike the Davidic kingdom that becomes the blueprint for the kingdom of God that Jesus establishes as the son of David, but the Blessed Virgin is the queen mother of the son of David. Right. And so this idea of motherhood being queenship and that queenship and kingship are meant to be motherly and fatherly. You know, I see my oldest son, who you know well, Mm -hmm. and Michael finished a PhD at Notre Dame. His dissertation is not quite as long as mine, but it's twice (laughs) as brilliant. He's going to be teaching scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary this fall. He's utterly Overwhelmed by his own inadequacy, he is less inadequate than anybody I know. But his intelligence, you know, I once taught him everything he knew. I, I taught him everything I knew. You know, now his intelligence, his depth is much greater than mine. But far from being threatened, I am so much more gratified and fulfilled in seeing the success of our kids than in experiencing it myself. I never imagined that I would experience success as someone who taught Catholic theology and scripture and all of those things. Thanks be to God, but you know, it's like David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 19, when he found out that he wasn't going to be allowed, he wasn't going to get to build God's temple, but his son Solomon was. He was actually more exuberant Mm -hmm. at the thought that his son Solomon would build the temple. That's the heart of a father. That's why God the Father is more glorified by having Christ extend his kingship to all of the nations, tribes, and tongues. It's like, who do you think you are, son? You know, upstart. <laughs> no. Right. A fatherhood and motherhood, too. And this is what our culture just doesn't get. No. It won't get. It won't even tolerate it. Because it would, be an, it would be an indictment on the kind of self-justifying individualism that makes us into kind of like self-worshiping wretches who are too proud to admit how wretched we are. Yes
0: absolutely as long as we stay away from humility the devil wins as long as we don't a little pride can go a long way exactly and so obviously coming from the protestant church but you've embraced mary's queenship her motherhood how do you see the dignity that god's given to women in a special way through mary
1: yeah i mean there she embodies both nature and grace, both the Old Testament that's natural as well as the New Testament that is supernatural because she is a mother like no one. Her child is perfect and divine. And we are her children as well because of the Holy Spirit. She is the mother in the family of God in the order of grace, but she's also a virgin. So wait a minute, back up, rewind the tape. You can't be both virgin and mother, unless you are the mother of God, unless you are the woman of the apocalypse, Revelation 12 she is woman and as such she is a beloved daughter she is also a sister she is a wife she is a mother she doesn't cease to be one thing to become the next so her virginal motherhood is a demonstration of divine fecundity fruitfulness that takes place in a mysterious way that we never will really understand by natural means inside of the godhead but i mean the blessed trinity overshadows her and enables her and joseph to form what St. Francis de Sales calls the earthly trinity. I'm convinced that we've got to translate the trinity from a kind of mathematical language three and one, as true as that is, into the familial language of fatherhood, sonship, to see how the Holy Spirit in overshadowing the Blessed Virgin enables her to do what no one can do apart from the Spirit, and yet what God wants for all of us, especially women to do precisely in and through the Holy Spirit.
0: Right. Because I think a lot of times women will read scripture and say, well, they weren't chosen for the 12 apostles. Mary barely said anything. You know, they look at all of these things as Christ overlooking them. But yet we have this amazing example in the Blessed Mother that's far elevated from being an apostle or, you know, it's... She was given such a role, and again, just because it's not explicitly written in words and you have to look deeper into it, oftentimes women don't see how much dignity the Lord has written into scripture, how much dignity that God has specifically given women in their own right. They're always looking in the sense, comparing to what Christ gave to men, but yet there's so much more. And that's what I always say, being a Catholic woman is more than any other title you could ever want. I mean, that's so <laughs> true. the elevation of just being Catholic and a woman that blows off the ceiling. You know, but there's don't nothing hold else.
1: your breath until the culture gets it. Because let's face <laughs> it, this is new wine. Our culture, old skins. They'll burst. Yet at the same time, I th- I feel like we're we're not home until we're in heaven. So no matter where we live, no matter how Christian the culture might be or might not be, we're still in exile, and we've got to remember that when we pray to her. And our prayers echo that sort of thing because that intensifies that longing for us to be more than what the culture will affirm and applaud. And I I can't help but wonder, you know, I was reading a book recently, rereading it by Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity, which he wrote when he was still a sociologist of religion and an agnostic. But he was looking at how Christianity spread and how women were a big part of that. Well, why? Well, for one thing, marital indissolubility. You didn't just get rid of your wife when she was old. Second, consecrated virginity, unimaginable. But at the same time, this idea that the Virgin Mary embodies the perfection of womanhood, but also of humanity more than any male has ever done, except for Jesus, but the person of Jesus is divine and not human. And so, you know, there are a series of things that have happened in the world through the church That still strikes the world as absurd. And to think that the world is ever going to celebrate this, well, I mean, it goes beyond the counterintuitive. The world will always say that makes no sense. And yet, when we live it out, we transform the world in ways that the world can't even comprehend. And I, I think that's the great adventure because, you know, you're living in this earthly state by means of a heavenly grace. But you're doing it through taking out the garbage, washing the dishes, changing the diapers, playing catch with your kids in the backyard, frisbee, you know, family game night and that kind of mm-hmm.
0: thing. Okay. Well, I just want to ask you a few quick questions that you can hopefully answer. Um,
1: (laughs) By now you know the questions (laughs) are quick, it's the answers that drag on.
0: But I actually, this is our Stump Scott Hahn segment, which I had asked a bunch of people that listen to the show if they had a question that they've always struggled with, a biblical question. So the first one is the church teaches that Jesus descended into hell for three days. Was this really hell as we understand it, or was it a waiting area for those who had obeyed and followed God and were waiting to be brought into heaven?
1: Okay, the short answer is that the original Greek of the Apostles' Creed is that he descended into Hades. Now in the New Testament, you distinguish between Hades and Gehenna. Jesus speaks of Gehenna, that's what we would mean by hell. The Greek word Hades translates the Hebrew Sheol, that's the netherworld. That's where the souls of the faithful departed and the unfaithful went and waited till the Messiah. And so, when the Lord Jesus suffered death and he descended into Hades, not Gehenna, he did so in triumph to liberate the souls of the faithful departed. And so, you can read about this in 2 Peter 3, likewise in Ephesians 4. And it's what the Creed captures. You know, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he leads captivity captive. He repopulates heaven. All of the visions of heaven in the Old Testament show us angels, period, no humans.
0: So were the two together, the souls that had been unfaithful and the souls that had been faithful but were waiting?
1: They weren't merged indiscriminately. You know, in Jewish eschatology, there was always a place where the righteous would wait. And there was another place where the unrighteous waited and they knew what was in store and they knew that they were unrighteous. And he
0: went to where the righteous were waiting, not to where the unrighteous
1: were. So Sheol is Hebrew, Hades is Greek. Gregory the Great is the one who comes up with Purgatorio because it's a place of preparation, but the preparation is purgation, where we have to have all of the selfishness that remains burned off by the fire, as it were. But at the same time, you don't go there as a second chance. You go there to be prepared to enter into the glory of and the glory God. and God
0: being outside of time. When Jesus was on the cross and He said to the good thief, "Today you will be with Me in the kingdom," but we know He went and descended into hell for three days. So being able to He descended to stay, into Hades for into three days, Hades, yes, okay. So when he says, today you will be with me, is that taken as God is outside of time? So when he says, today, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be in heaven that physical day.
1: Well, he is now in a state of grace. He just publicly confessed his own sinfulness. The fact that he and the other thief are worthy of their punishment, they deserve it. That he also publicly confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, he performed more good works in less than two minutes than most of us do in two years. Right. So Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is, uh, in a certain sense, not a place so much as a state, a state of grace. Okay, freedom from that sin, freedom
0: from what he was
1: in. St. Catherine is fond of saying that, you know, on the way to heaven is heaven. Because heaven isn't the place where we go to see the Trinity. The life of the Trinity is what we mean by heaven. And a state of grace is when the Trinity comes to live in us. And so that is paradise. That is the kingdom. When Jesus says, there are some standing here, will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in the glory of his kingdom. Well, there were 12 standing there. Three of them, Peter, James, and John, go up to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. When they see the Son of Man transfigured, they hear the voice of the Father identifying his beloved Son in the glory cloud of the Spirit. That is the first full public manifestation of the Holy Trinity. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus says there are some, three of them, standing here will not taste that before they see the Son of Man coming in the glory of his kingdom, it isn't because he thought he was coming again to judge the living and the dead at the end of time in a few days. It's because he was trying to instill in those disciples the fact that the kingdom is entering into the glorious life of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Pope Benedict got himself in trouble when he said, heaven is not a place where we go, heaven is a state of communion with the Holy Trinity. What are you talking about? He was just echoing what the scriptures teach, what the early church fathers teach, as well as the saints.
0: (laughs) Right, I guess you can't say that now. Right. None of the church fathers would be accepted now.
1: That's right, one last thing I wanna just kinda add, like I said, the answers are not so short. Some people say that Jesus went into hell to experience the torment of the damned. For example, Hans Urs von Balthasar would suggest that. I would say that's not the case, that he, he descends in triumph. But did Jesus experience the torment of the damned? No. Love doesn't diminish our capacity to suffer. Love enlarges it. So when he goes down into Hades with the fullness of love, he experiences suffering of the body and the soul immeasurably greater than the damned are capable of suffering. He doesn't experience the torment of the damned, but he doesn't therefore suffer less. Through his divine love, his own sacred humanity experiences suffering as St. Thomas explains in the Terti Pars of the Summa Theologica. Nobody has suffered as much as Jesus. Why? Because no one loves as much.
0: So it's a suffering of sorrow, more than we think of hell as this physical torment and That's right. gnashing of teeth, but what Christ suffered he didn't go down there for three days to have wailing and gnashing in his physical body but it's that immense sorrow that's right
1: and even more than the sorrow it's the caritas it's the charity that endows the painful afflictions as well as the suffering of the soul which is sorrow you know pain by itself doesn't redeem love by itself love is what transforms pain into passion Love is what transformed suffering into sacrifice. And not just by him for us, but by him and then in us. This is where we get offered up, redemptive suffering. We're so truly united to his body that our sufferings are now invested with a value that is infinitely greater than they would have on their own. From a hangnail, you know, to uh, dying a painful death. All of our suffering now takes on redemptive value. Love transforms suffering into sacrifice. Pain becomes a participation in his passion. And again, this isn't just doctrine, religious rhetoric. This is the reality that we will see face-to-face when we see him. A
0: spiritual him. reality, yes. That's right. I think that people don't always connect that. that this is something that you need to know. It's this not is just big and important. This, it needs to be applied yeah. right now. What you
1: see is not all you get. It's just a sliver of what you get. What you don't see is actually just as real, if not more.
0: Right. So why did God choose circumcision and not something else as a sign of the covenant? And how does this include women?
1: Okay, well, first I would recommend that you reread Genesis 15, 16, and 17. And then I have a chapter in my book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises on Abraham, who received circumcision. How do you spell belief is the title of the chapter. In Genesis 15, God promises Abram offspring. In Genesis 16, Baron Sarah, suggests that he have relations with Hagar, the Egyptian. In Genesis 17, after the son born by Hagar for Abraham, Ishmael is 13 years old. God comes and gives circumcision as the sacrament of the old law. I would say, first of all, it's a positive sign of Abraham's faith, but it's not only positive. Here's Abraham at 99 years of age receiving circumcision. A 99-year-old man does not need to be told that circumcision is also a negative sign. And I would propose that it's also penitential. Why not pierce his ear? Why not skin his elbow? Why do that there? Well, for one thing, as a penance for taking Hagar and thinking that Ishmael would represent the fulfillment of the promise. Even Rabbi Maimonides in the Middle Ages recognized that the timing between when Abram is circumcised at 99 Ishmael is circumcised at 13. And Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. No, Sarah will bear a son a year from now. You'll name him Isaac, which means laughter. And so here's a man obeying in faith at 99 years of age. He undergoes surgery there. And he is told by God, the angel says one year from now. Well, that leaves this man three months to recover from surgery at the age of 99 to resume his marital covenant love. So that nine months later, that's faith, not in some abstract spiritual notion, but I mean, he is concretizing faith in the most profound way. So that circumcision is a testimony not only to God's faithfulness, but to Abraham's humble faithfulness as well. Right,
0: because it is an interesting question. I mean, when you read through, you're like, why that? I mean, why in the world did he choose that? The other
1: thing that St. Thomas points out is that... Original sin for us as Catholics is not being totally depraved, as it is for Calvinists and Protestants. Is really being totally deprived of the sanctifying grace that our first parents had when they were created, but forfeited when they committed mortal sin. They entered into a kind of spiritual suicide pact. When you give consent to mortal sin, you snuff out the life of God in the soul. So when they perform their marital duty, when they renew the marital covenant, they successfully transmit human life that's natural, but it's utterly devoid of divine life that's supernatural. So there's nothing wrong with sex, but metaphysically it's totally inadequate, even in a happy marriage, to transmit that life that is divine. So even if your parents are canonizable saints like Saint Therese had, they still need to baptize their daughter to restore the life of the Trinity. So circumcision in the Old Testament is a sign that basically says, That no matter how much fulfillment we have through this particular action and our children that result, nevertheless, it is not by these means that divine life is transmitted. Colossians 2, Paul shows that the death and resurrection of Jesus is when he puts off the mortal flesh. It's cut off from his own body so that he becomes a new Adam and thereby he transmits divine life as an image of his father. The other thought too is how does this relate to women? Mm -hmm. Well, all of us are related to God in families. And so the father and the mother are the ones who transmit the faith. The father has a unique role as father. The mother doesn't have the same role, but it's not an inferior role. You know, say uh, Pope Pius XI said that Paul points out that the father is the head of the home, but the mother is the heart of the home. Well, the heart is not inferior to the head. It's invisible, but it's at the same time, the source of life. So the father's role is unique and when he fails this sign of faithful penance and acceptance of god's plan is embodied you might say in the male such that the woman learns from this you know and interesting yeah there's a whole lot more That's that i get into you know yes. when i saw that question on the sheet of questions i'm like okay how do i keep this under 45 minutes. Right. It is
0: fascinating. I <laughs> it mean, is. A, and Truly. a lot of people don't want to talk about that. They're like, "All right, let's just skip over that. That's what God chose and he chose it." But as we know, everything that God chooses has a deeper meaning. And the reason that he said only the males, he didn't say, you know, women, men, children, That's everyone. Right. There there's a specific role again for the male there. But it does include everyone in that covenant, all Israelites. It's not just the men because they are getting circumcised. So it's interesting and it really could go into another book. Oh, (laughs) it should.
1: But you know, the eighth day is what is required in Genesis 17. And as the church fathers were fond of pointing out, when does Jesus put off the mortal flesh in the resurrection? It's the eighth day. Wow. And so this is why not only does circumcision become baptism, But the Sabbath, the seventh day, becomes Sunday, the eighth day of resurrection.
0: Wow, I never thought of that. It just blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) So the last question is on prayer. After Cornelius' baptism, what prayers did Peter and the Christians likely teach them to develop their relationship with Christ? Here you have Cornelius, who he's all in. He's ready to get baptized. His whole household gets baptized. But then what? I mean, he doesn't know any prayers. Did they teach him Psalms? What would be something that they would train him in?
1: Two, maybe three things. The first thing is this ought to be our next interview. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing is this, that Cornelius in Acts 10 is a God-fearer. He is a Gentile, but he's already giving alms. And the angel shows him that the alms have been received from the God of Israel. Because as a God-fearer, he fears the God of Israel. He worships him. And he gives alms like you read about in Tobit and elsewhere. So in some ways, you know, you can have people living in the Old Testament who live by New Testament faith. Paul describes Abraham that way. Mm -hmm. Likewise, you can have Gentiles who are living the faith of Judaism more than some Jews. Right. Even though they don't have the
0: specific prayers or traditions, but... Just in their heart, in That's the right. way that they're devoted.
1: The third thing is this. What did god fears do for prayer? The book of Psalms. They did do something. Yes. For example, we have in Psalm 137 and elsewhere, the Babylonians, when they capture the Jews and bring them into exile, they say, sing us one of the songs of Zion because the 150 Psalms that we call the Psalter were not just for Jewish consumption, but Gentiles were coming up to Jerusalem because the largest precinct of Solomon's temple was the court of the Gentiles. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, you've made my father's house into a, a den of thieves when it's supposed to be a place of prayer for the Gentiles. Right. So you, you ascend, to Jerusalem, you you sing the Psalms of Ascent. So God-fearing Gentiles would have known the Psalms, they would have known the prayers of the hours. For example, in Acts 3 verse 1, Peter and John go up to the temple at the ninth hour of the hour of prayer we have the liturgy of the hours, we inherit right. it from them. So the God-fearers, just like laity can pray the breviary, so God-fearing Gentiles could pray the Psalms in a way that would correspond to the temple and give alms to the poor and the widows through the temple so or the other means. So the
0: Gentiles names. would have even followed those hours that's of right. the Christians. Very to the extent that
1: they could. And that's why Cornelius is praying at a particular hour, Peter is praying at a particular hour, when the Lord shows him, you're about to baptize the first Gentile. Right. And so what would he have learned? The Our Father. Okay. What else would he have learned? Probably, I would say the Apostles' Creed, though some scholars might dispute that it goes back that early. I am convinced from St. Ambrose that it does. Okay. The other prayers are the ones that are probably referred to in Acts 2.42, when these newly baptized disciples devoted themselves to the prayers, as well as the breaking of the bread, communion, and so on.
0: Right. So they would have been engaging in Mass, basically. Right. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Scott Hahn, so much. And we where- where Where can we find you? You're obviously doing so much with your publishing company right Right. now. Where can people find your books? Well, the
1: main place they can find me is teaching at Franciscan University of Steubenville after 30 years. Also, the main apostle that Kimberly and I have founded is called the St. Paul Center. So go to stpaulcenter.com. Likewise, Emmaus Road is a publishing house that we formed 20 years ago with Curtis Martin and Tim Gray, Ted Sree, and now that's a part of the St. Paul Center. So almost all of my books are coming out from Emmaus Road or Emmaus Academic, along with 50 books a year practically. So we're really excited with over 40 co-workers on board full-time with the St. Paul Center and all of the materials that we're putting out for beginners, intermediate, advanced, for clergy, laity, To teach the teachers and everybody else.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much for all that you're doing and for taking the time.
1: I've enjoyed this so much. (laughs) You're most welcome here.